This morning we're going to be looking at no murmuring and no disputings. That's no murmurings and no disputings. Our passage is Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and, sorry, verse 13, 14 and 15. Let's get it right, 14 and 15. Let's have a look at those two verses now. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Up until now, in chapter 2, we have considered Paul's exhortation to the Philippians to consider others better than themselves. It follows that if you belong to Jesus, having trusted in him as your saviour from sin, you are to do likewise. In verses 5 through to 11, our great example for humble living can be seen to be none other than the Son of God. In Acts of the Apostles, the Apostle Peter said to the Jews on the day of Pentecost regarding the death and then the exaltation of Jesus this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It speaks of, that passage speaks of the death, the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then his exaltation by God. Similarly, as we have seen in Paul's epistle to the Philippian church, the Son of God humbled himself, taking upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a servant he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as the sacrifice for sin. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. With God's enabling grace, Christians are to be of the same mind as their Saviour, who came down into this dark world of sin in humility. He took the form of a servant, a bondservant, a slave. He laid down his life as their substitute sin-bearer, Now, if you belong to Jesus, that certainly leaves absolutely no room whatsoever for you to exalt yourself. We see with Jesus, who is the Son of God, no less, the eternal Son of God, that it was his Father who exalted him and highly exalted him after his obedience unto the death of the cross. If you belong to Jesus... Actually, God has already exalted you. You've already been exalted. 
God has lifted you out of the miry clay and he has placed you upon that rock whose name is Jesus. I don't know about you, but I would say that that is an amazing exaltation. Now you are a priest of the Most High God. You weren't before, but now you are, if you are a Christian. And you demonstrate the reality of all of these things being raised up, being made a, a royal priest in a holy nation. You demonstrate all that by living in humility, with lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than yourselves. That goes completely against the advice of this world, doesn't it? And you think of people who who are highly esteemed in this world and people look up to them. They do anything but live in humility, esteeming others better than themselves. But we are to do that if we belong to the, the King of Glory. To esteem others better than ourselves with lowliness of mind. We have considered the exhortation given by the Apostle Paul in verse 12 to the Philippians and by extension to all Christians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who worketh in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. It was pointed out that even with lowliness of mind and with the twin blessings of faith and fear, a fear of God your Father, verse 12 is only achievable because of the very next verse, verse 13, where it says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. With regards working out your own salvation, the fact is that all born-again Christians are already saved from all of their sins and they already have everlasting life. But still, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. The salvation that you already have, salvation from sin, Salvation from all your iniquities is thoroughly undeserved. It is not in any way earned or merited, but rather it is the gift of God that is received through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a hymn writer said, For salvation full and free, purchased once on Calvary, Christ alone shall be my plea, Jesus, Jesus only. Let's now look at our verses for today, verses 14 and 15. I'll read them again to you. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. The murmuring that is spoken of in verse 14 is not to be thought of just as a loud protest against God like you may see with uh, the people of this world as they wave their puny fists towards heaven and they uh, very loudly blame God for all the ills that befall them. And they take the name of the Lord in vain. Rather, Paul was referring to a low-level grumbling, 
when, for example, maybe you have been tasked to do something beneath your dignity and your murmuring is directed towards others as you consider the great injustice of you being tasked to do such a job uh, when others are not doing that job. That should not happen. Again, we need to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he came into this world, the Son of God, making himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient unto the death of the cross. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And in John 17, Jesus prayed to his Father concerning those whom his Father had given him, Christians, that they may be one, just as he and his Father are one. You can be sure that any oneness that we as Christians lay claim to would hardly reflect the oneness of the Father and the Son if we are busy murmuring and grumbling about each other. You can't imagine God and the Son grumbling and murmuring about each other. So, I hope it's clear that we shouldn't murmur about one another. The question I have for you is, if and when we murmur, when we are doing something, is it taking it too far to say that indirectly our murmuring is directed to God and against God? When when we're busy doing something, getting on with something, and we're having a good old moan to ourselves, perhaps about so-and-so or the injustice of it, are we ultimately murmuring, not just to God, but about God? What do you think? What do you think? When I flicked through various commentaries, many of them did not appear to entertain any idea that Paul was cautioning the Christians against murmuring about God and against God, as well as murmuring against each other. They didn't go down that road. However, when you appreciate that the Christians... Uh, that Christians are all members of one body of which the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the head, that Christians are all in Christ, that they are all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, surely when you murmur and grumble about this, about that, about so-and-so, ultimately what you can very easily end up doing, albeit in an indirect way, is murmuring against the Lord. That is precisely what the ancient Israelites did when they moaned amongst themselves about Moses or about his brother Aaron or about whoever. Ultimately, their moaning was directed against the Lord. Needless to say that the Lord was not at all pleased with the Israelites of old. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7 through to 10, The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, referring to the Israelites of old. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. That was the judgment of God upon the Israelites of old. 
23,000 fell because of their sexual immorality and their idolatry. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Now listen to this. Nor murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's all in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Note that in those verses, murmuring is listed alongside other horrible sins like idolatry and sexual immorality. And the punishment for the Israelites because of their murmuring wasn't a slap on the wrist. It was destruction. Therefore, we can reasonably assume that the Lord has a very dim view indeed, of his people, Christians, murmuring about this and that, and one another. Don't be too quick to distance yourself from the largely unregenerate Israelites of old and their habitual murmuring by saying that you, as a born-again Christian, would never do such terrible things. Don't kid yourselves. Paul said what he said about the Israelites as a warning to Christians. We know that because in the very next verse in that passage in Corinthians, he said, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Those things were written for our benefit, so that we don't do likewise. Let's face it, grumbling about a lowly task that has been assigned to you, even if it is nothing more than having a quiet little moan in someone's ear, in some private place, reveals anything but a lowly mind. And when that murmuring is about another brother or sister in Christ, it dishonours that person's saviour who loved him and who gave himself for him. Putting it very simply, who is any one of us in here as a Christian? Who are you? Who am I to have a moan about someone who has been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus? Do all things without disputings. The disputings spoken of in verse 14 are not, nece- not necessarily full-blown arguments amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. That doesn't usually happen. It can do, but it's not uh, something that happens from day to day. When you think that the serpent was more subtle than Eve in the garden, it ought not surprise you to learn that disputings can take on a much more subtle form such as a very ugly, unhealthy and evil reasoning in your heart about someone else. For example, if you want to turn with me to to Luke chapter 5, keep your finger in Philippians 2, but turn to Luke chapter 5, a passage that I would guess all of you would be familiar with, when the paralysed man was lowered through the roof of a house, where Jesus was teaching, the house was packed, his stretcher bearers couldn't get him through the front door, so they lowered him through the roof. Lowered him down to the feet of Jesus. It's in Luke chapter 5. And 
I'm going to read from verse 21 through to 26. This is a good example of murmuring, uh, I mean, yeah, of disputings rather. Okay, verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, so they weren't actually talking to each other, this is what was going on inside their hearts. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Look at verse 21 again. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason. Keep that in mind. They accused Jesus of speaking blasphemy. So in other words, when they were reasoning in their hearts, they were thinking evil thoughts. It has to be evil. Uh, Once you start thinking that Jesus, the Son of God, is speaking blasphemies, your thinking is evil. It's as simple as that. In the very next verse, Jesus, who knows the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, knew what they were thinking, and he said to them, what reason ye in your hearts? And the point that I want to bring to you is that those evil thoughts, the things that they were reasoning in their hearts, are from the same Greek word that is translated disputings in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Let's turn back to that now with that background information there and read it again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Remember, your murmurings, when you're, when you're thinking how unfair it is that you're doing this or you're having a quiet little moan, inside you, uh, to someone about the injustice of it all, you're actually, ultimately, your murmuring is against the Lord. And then the next thing we see here, the disputings, that's when you start reasoning in your heart. It doesn't always have to be out loud, waving your fists and having a full-blown argument with someone. Reasoning in your hearts, having those, entertaining those wicked thoughts in your heart and in your mind. It should not come as a surprise to you Christians to learn that if and when you murmur or if you enter into disputes, that sinful behaviour proceeds from an evil heart. Because 
The heart is the seat of sin. Again, these things we see in verse 14, they're not necessarily loud and obvious to everyone. They can be all hidden away in the heart. As the 19th century minister Robert Murray McShane said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart, he said. He didn't say in his heart, in my heart. And if we're being honest, we can say the same thing. And I trust the Christians in here do have this honesty. The ones who aren't Christians will probably struggle with this because they're hanging on to their um, self-righteousness and their pride and their arrogance. But I trust the Christians will be able to say that the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Now we can consider the very positive and God-honouring consequences of not engaging in murmurings and disputings. Let's look at the next verse, verse 15. When you don't do the murmurings, you don't do the disputings. Verse 15, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. For one thing, such a person is said to be blameless. If you're someone who doesn't um, murmur, you don't dispute, you're blameless. If that is your testimony, that you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins as a repentant sinner, then according to the many verses of Scripture, as I've already said, you are someone who is saved from all your sins, you are no longer under condemnation, you have everlasting life and all of those things were accomplished at the cross and with the resurrection of Jesus. And they have all been graciously given to you by God. That is your position before God, someone in whom there is no sin. The the Lord Jesus Christ has taken your sins away at the cross. Holy and without blame before God. In love. If the words of your testimony really have proceeded from a new heart in which Jesus abides by faith, and if your baptism really has signified that you are crucified with Christ, that you really are buried with Christ and raised up to newness of life in Christ, then God is working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. We've seen this last week. These things are really happening. At least I trust they are, dear Christian. God really is working in you, born again Christian, saved from all your sins. If that is you, then God predestined you to be holy without blame before him. Now with God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure... What God has predestined for you to be holy and without blame should be more and more, become more and more of a a reality in your day-to-day life. This is where uh, the theory becomes the practice. Or not just the theory, what is a reality in as much as God has predestined it for you becomes visible in your life. So that when you look at those verses of scripture, you don't feel so awkward as maybe you used to do. When you read that you're holy and without blame before God, 
you know, as the years go by, I trust that you are not so reproachable, shall we say, as you used to be. Because God is working in you. And, and day by day, conforming you to the image of Jesus, sanctifying you through the word. When you read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit's working that truth into you, into your, into your heart, into your bones, into your marrow, into every fibre of your body and your being. And with God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure, you work out your salvation. You do so with fear and trembling and presumably that includes prayerfully striving for more holiness, more separation from the world. Do you actually do that, Christian? Quite simply, God, I pray for more holiness. You've said in your word, be holy for I am holy. So that's something to pray for, more holiness, more godliness in your life, more Jesus. And you do those things, you pray for those things as you earnestly look to God for an ever-increasing blamelessness in your born-again life, one that is devoid of murmurings and disputings. It's an ongoing job, isn't it? We read in chapter 1 that God will bring to completion the work that he started in you and we thank God for that. But you are to work out your salvation with fear and with tremblings and that includes the murmurings, the disputings, to pray about these things and to to be serious about it. That's why we're to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Don't play games with God. Don't mess with God. And the Holy Spirit works in all God's people to achieve these things. I like Spurgeon's comments on verse 15. He said, Men will blame you, but you must seek as Christians to lead lives that give no occasion for blame. I know it's a tall order, but it's one that we aim for. We don't just say, well, I'll never achieve that, so I won't bother. It's about, it's, a, it's like saying, um, you know, a child at school saying, I'm never going to get a grade A star in my maths, so I won't even bother. You do aim for it. You, are not, you aim for an A star in blamelessness. And the reason you do so is because you've got God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And what is good, God's good pleasure? That there's no murmurings, no disputings. Like Daniel, compel people to say of you, we will not find any pretext against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Erasmus writes of his great adversary, Luther, even Luther's enemies cannot deny but that he is a good man. Force this acknowledgement from an unwilling world. Live so that as in Tertullian's age, Men may say, as they did in his time, such and such a man is a good man, even though he is a Christian. The heathens thought the Christians the worst of men, but were compelled to confess them to be the best, even though they were Christians. We cannot be blameless if we murmur and dispute, for such things naturally lead to sin. 
our lights cannot shine if instead of trimming them we occupy ourselves with blowing out the lamps of others. Last of all, folks, may it be your prayer to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven as you look unto the light of the world, your great God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his enabling grace to make it a living reality for the glory of God. May each one of us endeavour to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen.